Welcome to another episode of Behind the Plate presented by Baseball America. I'm your host, Kyle Glazer. We're very, very excited to bring you the second episode of this new podcast series. where We bring in scouts from all across the game to discuss their experiences, the players they've signed, and share some fun stories from their careers. On today's episode, we have a very special guest, Diamondbacks Pacific Northwest Area Scout Dan Ramsey. Dan was the signing scout for current National League Rookie of the Year favorite Corbin Carroll, as well as D-backs right-hander Ryan Nelson. And he signed both of them in his first draft as a scout nonetheless. Dan has a really interesting backstory. He's the son of a scout. His dad, Scott Ramsey, is currently the Nationals Area Scout in the Pacific Northwest. Has scouted for more than 30 years for numerous organizations, Phillies, Royals, Nationals, Tigers among them. Uh, He signed Doug Fister along with a couple other big leaguers. So Dan grew up learning from his dad what the art of scouting was from a very young age. Dan also became a college head coach at the age of 22 due to some pretty unique circumstances we'll get into on the podcast. Dan was kind enough to join us today as he journeyed back from a scouting trip in Seattle to his home in Spokane. And joining us now from central Washington between a cemetery and a farm uh, on the I-90 is D-backs Pacific Northwest Area Scout Dan Ramsey. Dan, first and foremost, thank you so much for joining us today under uh, some unique circumstances. Yeah, uh, Kyle, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So, Absolutely. You know, before we dive into your story and talking about signing Ryan Nelson and Corbin Carroll, I feel like we have to share the background here. So I reached out to Dan about doing this. He had told me originally that his plan was going to be he'll be in a hotel and we'll do it from there. But the life of a scout is one of constant change. You constantly have to improvise. When we spoke this morning, you were in your car and and you had to pull over to do this podcast. Uh, I mean, how did this kind of transpire? And and how much is just kind of, again, the life of a scout, constant change, you constantly have to improvise on the fly. You know, I was actually supposed to be in Corvallis uh, yesterday um, to watch the Beavers. And then we got late notice from uh, Jason Kelly at UW that Case Matter was going to start. He's a reliever there. So I figured, hey, if we know he's going, I might as well chase him down. So uh, change the plans. I came up to Seattle, stayed in Issaquah last night. And, uh, you know, I actually got up early this morning and I went to Snoqualmie Falls, which is this just gorgeous waterfall uh, right outside of Seattle. I'd never been there. I've driven by it a thousand times. I hit that up, uh, took some great pictures, tried to soak in the nature and then jumped in the car. And here we are. So how often would you say your plans uh, get blown up or you have to change on the fly in the scouting world? In the Pacific Northwest? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's more common that they change than that they stick to what you had originally planned on. Just because especially early in the spring, we deal with some horrible, horrible weather. But I don't know if I can show you the outside right now but it's it's gorgeous here right now so yeah yeah no it's warming up but no i just love again i feel like this is you know i think sometimes on the outside people see scouts as having this glamorous life oh you get paid to watch baseball for a living and and obviously there's a lot of great times and great memories and and there's a lot of awesomeness about it but there's also times where again you find yourself in the middle of nowhere, pulling off to the side of the road to, to take a call or do something and, and play, you know, towns with no names, pretty much. Yes, sir. <laughs> yep. All right. So, so Dan, obviously we brought you on because you're the signing scout for Corbin Carroll, who's the favorite for the National League Rookie of the Year Award this year, as well as Ryan Nelson, who has really asserted himself as a part of the D-backs rotation. Uh, but before we talk about them, I, I want to get into your history because you have a really, really interesting backstory. You started out your collegiate career at Gonzaga. You transferred to Whitworth, a really, really good D3 program. You're there 2007, 2008 as a player. And then 2009, you become the head coach at Whitworth, a year out of playing at 22 years old. Take us through that that journey and how that happened. Yeah, you know, this is a story I've actually told quite a bit, but um, I I love telling it because I I like to reminisce. Uh, My What would have been my redshirt junior year, or at, at Whitworth, um, our coach resigned. He just, he, he called us together as a team and said, I'm no longer coaching. And we weren't very good at that point. Like we were, we kind of struggled. Um, so I called a team meeting. I brought everybody up and I just said, Hey guys, listen, like we need to start working our tails off. Cause whoever they hire is going to come in and, and wipe us out. Like they'll just run us out of here. They'll bring in a new, a new group. Cause we weren't very good. And one of my teammates jokingly said like, why don't you just apply for it then? Like kind of being a smart ass, you know? So, um, but really that, that planted a seed. Um, and the next day I walked into the athletic director's office. I put a suit and tie on for the first time in my life. 
And I said, hey, Scott, um, I'd like to apply for the baseball job. And he kind of laughed at me. Um, but then I sat down and we had about a 45 minute conversation. Um, he told me he was going to give me an interview. Um, and at that point, it kind of felt he was just taking care of a student athlete that he liked. Um, but had no intention of hiring me. But um, after that interview, I could feel the seriousness on his end. And I knew, I knew they were going to at least pursue me. Um, yeah, I uh, went through that whole interview process, ended up getting hired at 22 years old. I was coaching a group of kids that I was teammates with, you know, five days earlier. Um, and I, gosh, I did it for nine years. I look back at the process and as hard as it was, like I call it baptism by fire. Um, yeah. I mean, I'd never really consistently answered emails before, let alone, let alone had to recruit kids and work with alumni and, and run a college baseball program, um, at a small college where I wear about nine different hats. So, um, but I'll tell you what, it was, it was a phenomenal experience. I look back, I wouldn't do that piece any differently. Um, there are times where I still miss, I, I miss that small college atmosphere, um, where I'm working with players every day and stuff, but honestly, there's, there's nothing that, uh, I would trade for the autonomy I have in this position. Um, and also for me, it's just, I'm on the right path. Um, and guys like Corbin Carroll, Ryan Nelson, like the fact that I was fortunate enough to be a part of their story. Um, it's just confirmation for me that I'm on the right path. So. Absolutely. I mean, again, 2009 is the year we're talking about here again, you're, you're 22 years old. First of all, I have to ask, what was the sales pitch to the AD? You mentioned at the time, you know, it started out as he was just kind of, you know, letting you talk, but by the end of it, you could see there was a change in the tone and the seriousness that he was looking at you as a real candidate. What were some of the things you talked to him about that kind of turned the conversation into, Hey, I'm actually a serious candidate here. I think honestly, the, the answer to this kind of goes back even further. Like as an eight year old, I got yelled at by my mom for writing baseball stats on my sheets, <laughs> <laughs> like my bed sheets. Like I just, I've been passionate about this game my entire life. Yeah. Um, I used to, I used to practice my signature in elementary school because I wanted to sign baseballs when I got older. You know, I, I used to write practice plans when I was a student athlete and we wouldn't, I would never use them for anything, but I liked organizing. Um, I liked the way, uh, I liked the idea of being a head coach. Um, so when I sat down with him and being a 22 year old who thought I had no chance at the job, there was like no pressure whatsoever. Like it was like, well, you're going to tell me no. Great. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with where we're at. So how would you describe yourself as a player? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I've actually had this conversation with people before. Um, I was a switch hitting catcher. Um, my father's been a scout my entire life. So obviously he groomed me, um, to give me my best chance at the big leagues um, and I, I dropped that ball. Um, but I was pretty tough, like hard nosed. I mean, I got hit by 21 pitches as a leadoff hitter as a freshman in high school at Rockland high school in Sacramento, California. Yep. Um, I crowded the plate left-handed. I had a lot of power right-handed. Um, but I'm scouting for a reason. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you're 22 years old. You, you've decided to hang it up as a player. You said you said you had another year of eligibility left. I actually want to ask about that. How difficult of a decision was that to not play your final year and just move straight into coaching? You know, there's some dynamics at the small college level, especially the Division three level, where there's no scholarships, uh, right. at least no athletic scholarships. Um, right. So to stay for a fifth year is pretty uncommon for Division three players just because it's, it's a lot of money to go to school there and – uh, a lot of times kids just make the decision to move into a profession at that point. Um, so for me, actually, I wasn't going to return my senior year. And this isn't something I've shared with a lot of people, but um, my dad was scouting with the Royals at the time. And they were hiring an internship position um, in the Dominican to teach English to Spanish speakers. Um, and my background is language acquisition and uh, I am proficient in Spanish. So the idea, that was the plan. The plan was to go to the Dominican, spend a summer there. Um, and then our coach resigned and it threw it for a loop. Here we go. Having to have some flexibility, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess in that case, what was that decision like going and maybe getting started on a path working for an organization? You mentioned your dad, you know, continuing that family legacy versus, again, taking kind of a big step into the unknown as, as a first time head coach at 22 years old. Yeah. Um, honestly, there's something about that whole situation that I felt prepared for. And I don't know if it's just the fact that I grew up with a, a my dad's a former college coach. He's a, he's been a professional scout for 30 years. Um, I mean, I, I joke with people about this all the time, but I was kind of destined to scout. Like I remember I used to, I used to go to all the ballparks with my dad as a kid. And when I was uh, probably seven or eight years old for Christmas, I got a stopwatch in my stocking. Um, so I was the guy who had my own stopwatch at the ballpark as an eight year old. Like most kids are playing pickle behind the, uh, the stands and I'm sitting there with my dad trying to learn the game. So, um, I was fortunate, man. I, I, I tell people this all the time, but like, and it sounds crazy, but there's a, there's a legend of a scout from the Pacific Northwest. He used to work for the Phillies named Bill Harper. I mean, the guy is a legend. I hung out in a hotel room with Bill Harper, my dad, David, David piles. I'm talking some legendary scouts for most of my childhood. So the conversations I heard in a hotel room, like they used to tip me $20 bills at tryout camps just for shagging for them. Um, or they taught me how to make screwdrivers, right? Like uh, orange juice and vodka. And they would tip me whenever I would make one for them in the hotel room. So I, I had an opportunity to just be around baseball people and hear the, hear the conversations and, and hear the things they talked about and how they talked about players. And I mean, that was all part of my education as a scout. So it's pretty fun. Yeah, I, again, you have that education from your earliest childhood memories. You play yourself, you're, you know, at the collegiate level. How much did you take that into coaching? Because again, scouting and coaching and playing and coaching, it's there's a lot of similarities, but it is a different discipline. How did you kind of take what you learned from those experiences into coaching, especially at 22 with guys who the previous year you were locker mates with and now you're in a position of authority? It's a totally different dynamic. For sure. Yeah, honestly, the what I learned because the more you're around the game, the more you learn, right? Like that's just the nature of it. So being around a lot as a kid, it, it kind of helped me develop some ideas about how I would strategize, how I would coach, what my expectations would be. But I think the bigger challenges I faced early on were just, I, I wasn't sure how to, to establish a culture. Yeah. Um, that took me some time to, to really, to, to, to wrap my head around, especially when you're dealing with 18 year old kids and you're basically a kid yourself. So, um, that was that I think that was the bigger struggle I had was the baseball piece was is baseball. Like and honestly, I got better and better every year. And I, I, I feel that way right now. Like if I'm not better, if I'm not a better scout next year than I am right now, that's a big problem. Right. Um, and I kind of had that perspective as a coach, but I'll be just blatant with you. Like I had I was clueless. I was 22 <laughs> years old. Like I had never coached high school baseball. I had no I, I didn't know what it meant to coach. Um, and honestly, I've been a people pleaser my whole life. So that's not a good, not a good to be a people pleaser when you're a head coach, um, because you can't make everybody happy. If everybody's happy, you're probably not a very good leader. Um, and that's just the nature of it. So, um, yeah, I, I took a lot from the game, the strategy, all that. That was, that was, I want to say easy cause it wasn't easy, but that came second nature versus, leading and developing culture and holding people accountable. And that was a little more difficult. That took, uh, that took some time. How did you establish a culture, especially again, when a year ago, these are your, your buddies and now you're in a position of authority. How did you establish that culture? Yeah, honestly, the first three and a half years was really bumpy. And then I just, I became a man a little bit, <laughs> just decided like, Hey, this is my program. It's a direct reflection of me. If you guys fail, I fail. So the standard is now here. And when you reach that, it's further up. So that's just kind of how I got going on it. And, um, you know, I, Whitworth is, is a Christian university. Most of the kids who were attracted to a school like that were pretty good kids um, from pretty good families who could afford to go to school there. So it made it a it made that process a little bit easier. And it helped me kind of hone in on the type of individuals I wanted to build the culture around, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned this was a program that was struggling when you were there as a player. Coach resigned. Obviously, you're 22 years old, taking the reins for the first time. And you had to build that culture. 2012, 
your fourth season, you guys get to the Division Three World Series. How did you take it from, again, just as you mentioned, a, a really rough place to the College World Series in four seasons, especially by this point? You're still only 26 by the time you get there. Um, I had some really good guidance um, early on in my career from my father, of all people. Mm-hmm. Um, he encouraged me to play all my freshmen my first year. He's like, who cares if they're your teammates? Who cares if they're your friends? You need to develop your program and your freshman class may not be better than that senior class, but you need to develop them. And I did. I mean, my first year, I think we had multiple games where we had nine freshmen on the field. Um, And it was an intentional thing. And I didn't know why at the time, but you fast forward four years and we had a senior group that had more games under their belt than anybody in the country. Now they're probably one of the lose. By the time they were juniors, they had more losses than they had wins. Um, but they started to figure things out. They started to come together. And then um, it really culminated that that year that we went to the World Series, by the way, was not my most talented team in my time at Whitworth. Not even close. Um, we should have been at multiple World Series because we had some talent. Um, but, uh, yeah, long story short, um, I had a good group of kids. Um, I had a good group of kids that were bought in. They had opportunities to transfer and leave multiple times, and they didn't. Um, and that that's what it came back to. It was just I had a good group of kids. <laughs> so, um, And a good coaching staff and just everything comes together for a reason, and it did that year. So, You mentioned playing these guys as freshmen, you know, on your dad's advice, and obviously it paid off. But there's obviously some really tough conversations. You know, you take over as a head coach, guys you've played with, your buddies – they're juniors and seniors looking, you know, to play one or two final years and, and kind of finish their careers on a high note. And you have to be the one to tell them, hey, guys, I'm going to play the freshman over you. How difficult were those conversations? Awful, man. Like, awful. I, it, it's ruined relationships for me to this day. Like, um, and again, like, that's that's part of being a leader, right? Like, you just sucks um, because, again, every head coach in the country is going to tell you the same thing. Like nobody wants to kill anybody's dreams. <laughs> like, yeah. And honestly, even managing, like having to release guys, like that's tough. That's really tough to do. Um, you're basically saying, Hey, this thing you've dreamed about your whole life, it, it's done. So yeah. good luck. Hey, that's not a fun, not a fun conversation to have with any, but with anyone, but they were c- completely necessary. So. So you're at Whitworth, you take over at 22 years old, you play the freshman, get this group, College World Series, you establish the culture after a few years. How would you describe what the culture was? Um, we had an accumulative team GPA of a 3.75. Okay. Yes. Our standard in every category was through the roof. And I look back, I don't know that, I'm sure I'd be able to, to do it over again, but man, like I, I had it in a good spot. I had the program in a good spot. I was pretty happy with where we were at. Um, our kids were respectful. Um, they sat in the front row in class. They took off their hats. Um, people knew who baseball players were on campus. Um, because of how we carried ourselves. We had dress codes. I mean, shoot, I made my assistant coaches tuck in their shirts when we're out recruiting. So, uh, uh, not military-esque because I'm by no means that type of personality. Um, I'm a pretty easygoing, fun-loving guy. But I'll tell you what, like when it came to that program and what it meant for our reputation and my personal reputation, um, this the bar was set very, very high. Um, and honestly, I've had opportunities to talk with some former players in subsequent years, and they've thanked me for that. And it caused me heartache when I tried to establish it. But uh, after the fact, you look back and you go, man – we did it right. So, so you're there 2009 to 2017. I have to ask, were you getting any opportunities to go move up and coach at the division one level as an assistant, anything like that? And what were those decisions like? Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Uh, this is one I don't touch on very often. I don't even include it on my resume, but in 2015, we played in a regional in Tyler, Texas. We lost in the championship game uh, to Tyler who ended up winning the national championship that year. And I got home and I had a, a voicemail from Donnie Marbit at Washington state. He was a head head coach at Washington state. And he said, I'd, I'd like to have you up to Pullman. I'd like to discuss 
the opportunity to coach with you. So drove up the road. It's only about an hour and a half to Pullman. Uh, sat down with Donnie, and we, I ended up signing a contract that day um, and was hired as an assistant for him in, at Washington State. Um, two weeks later, uh, he was uh, terminated, and so was my position. Um, you know, we had just bought a house in Pullman and um, really tough one to swallow. We had a young daughter at the time. Uh, I have four children now, but only one at the time. Um, I called Whitworth, I called the AD at Whitworth and I just said, Hey, I, I know the position's still open. Like I'm happy to apply. And he wrote back, I'm not going to make you apply for your job. So I was rehired. Um, so I did have a, a small, a two week stint uh, at Washington state university, um, returned to Whitworth. Um, and then the, the twins, the twins situation came up where I started that process and, um, yeah. So. Yeah. Talk about life throwing you curveballs, huh? <laughs> yeah. I get a lot of those. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So you're at Whitworth through 2017, and then you get an opportunity to ma manage in professional baseball uh, with the Twins Gulf Coast League affiliate. How did that come about? Yeah. Another, another kind of fun story. Uh, one of my closest friends in the game of baseball is a guy named Kainoa Correa. Um, he's the bench coach for the San Francisco Giants. Um, at the time, Kai was a recruiting coordinator at the University of Northern Colorado. Um, I always worked his camps. He's these camps, they're called Friday Fielders. And he's like the best infield coach I've ever been around outside of Mark Johnson, uh, who used to coach at Texas A&M. But um, Kai was like, hey, you're coming to work my camp. You've done it the last five years. I need you there. And I said, no, man, I'm, I'm going to stay home with my family this time. And he goes, it's too late, dude. I already bought your ticket. So jumped on a plane, went out, worked his camp and we're having dinner at his house that night. Uh, he got a random phone call from Tanner Swanson, who was the catching coordinator with the twins at the time. And he said, Hey man, I'm looking for some fourth coaches to, for our catchers. Do you know any catching coaches? And I'm sitting across the table from Kai. Like I can hear Tanner's voice on the other line. And Kai like proceeded to give like four or five names of catching coaches, all guys who I know. And then he hung up the phone. I was like, Hey man, why don't you give him my name? And he was like, dude, you got a head coaching job. You're not going to take a fourth coach job in the minor leagues. You've got a family. You're not like, that's not you. And I was like, you might be right, but just give him my name. See what happens. And he did. He, he reached out to Tanner shortly after that, brought me up. Uh, the next day I woke up to a text message from uh, the former farm director there. He's an assistant GM now, uh, Jeremy Zoll. Yep. And Jeremy uh, started the interview process that moment. Like we started, we got on the phone. Um, they were interviewing me to start for a fourth coaching gig. And then I, I let it slip that I have my master's degree. And the second I said that, he was like, well, would you be interested in managing? And then it was like a game changer. Um, I was offered the Dominican summer league job and I was so excited about it because my background in Spanish. Um, I love the idea of bringing my family out there, let my kids learn a different language, learn a different culture. Um, and then my wife, the Dominican and pregnancy, uh, but there's some viruses out there that aren't good for pregnant women. So we decided uh, she wasn't going to come with me. I called the twins and explained like, Hey, I appreciate the opportunity to, to manage in the uh, Dominican, but I can't do it. So I, I like just said, sorry, I can't do it. I can't put my wife in that situation. I don't want to be away from her for that long. And they said, well, what if we gave you the Gulf coast league job? Um, and I said, yeah, let's do it. Uh, <laughs> Scott Brocious, uh, yep. former Yankee was the head coach at Linfield, um, yep. which was in the same conference as Whitworth, the, the, the conference I coached in. And I called Scott and I said, Hey, I just got this offer, um, for the Gulf coast league. And he told me it was one of the few jobs he would take in professional baseball as a manager. And I've, I've respected Scott from the day I met him. And it was like, a, hey, if this man says it, I'm all in. And I did it. And again, it was, it was a tough experience, but a phenomenal experience. Um, and it was tough only because I was away from my family. So. Yeah. What was your experience like that one year coaching in the Gulf coast league, you know, kids who really in other ways were the same age as a lot of the freshmen you were coaching at the collegiate level. You know, the way I've tried to explain it to people like, and this isn't necessarily as much about the athletes, but You, I learned so much just by being around all those other coaches. I mean, it was 
day in and day out, just a full blown learning experience for me. Um, and don't get like, I, I'm a lifelong learner. Like I was doing ABCA convention every year. I was always trying to find ways, ways to grow as a coach. But when you're in the middle of all that with those great minds, I mean, it was, I was taking note after note, after note, after note. And I was supposed to be leading some of the meetings as a manager. So, um, yeah, it was a, it was an amazing experience, uh, from a learning standpoint, just learning the game of baseball, learning professional baseball, um, because I'd only ever had a scout's perspective. Obviously I didn't play. Um, I didn't coach at that level. So it was all a learning experience for me. Incredible, incredible experience. Uh, I was surrounded by some just amazing baseball people, but amazing men. Um, yeah, that, that whole organization, they sure treated me right. It was good. It was a very good year. So what were some of the biggest things you did learn specifically in that context? Um, so we talk a lot about culture, right? Um, and this is a little different spin on culture, but I never spent any time around Dominican athletes or Puerto Rican athletes or Venezuelan athletes or I mean, we joked, like we called our team the UN because we represented like 14 different countries. Like I had a kid from Taiwan, a kid from Moldova uh, who spoke Russian. I had a kid from Germany. Like, so it was, it was a great experience. Um, it was literally, I would say my message and then I would wait for three different translators to say the same message to the group. And then I would go with my next message. So it was just a very different experience in that regard. But again, like so I spent one month in the Dominican Republic during that stretch uh, where I worked with the catchers in the Dominican Summer League. And I'll tell you what, man, I don't know if you've ever been to the Dominican, but seeing where some of those kids come from is really, really eye-opening. Yeah. Like, it's it's honestly, it's sad. It's a third world country. Like, yeah. and I'm seeing some of these guys and I'm just going, because I had no idea. Like I visited one of the kids' house while we were out there. It didn't have windows. It didn't have a door. It's like a shack. Yeah. And that's where he grew up, like hitting bottle caps and stuff. And it's just, it gives you some perspective that I wish a lot of American kids had because like domestically, we have it pretty good. Even the, even the kids that don't have it good. Cause there's a lot of kids who have a tough, that had a tough life, but it's not even close to what some of those Dominican kids experience. So biggest learning tool for me was that piece. And then I think the other piece that where I can apply it to my job now is just the importance of makeup. Yeah. Like the summers, that's a grind. You starting in February. I mean, most of these kids it's year round, like they're training year round, but you get up every single day, you go work out, you go eat, you go practice, you go eat, you go play all day, every day, all summer long. And it's in the Gulf roast league. Right. Yep. So, yep. I mean, you're dealing with thunderstorms every day at three 30, right at the end of every game. And you're just hoping you can get through them. And that, that was a, a big learning piece for me. And then I think the other piece is baseball is baseball. Like I coached the same way at the D three level that I coached at the D one or at the bigly or the minor league level, right? Like nothing changed in how I approached the athletes, my, the way I spoke, the way I talked to them, the way I interacted, like it's the same game. Um, and I, I tell that to a lot of people, like I have guys tell me like, well, I'm just a 12 U coach. And I'm like, dude, you're a coach. Like that's a big responsibility. It's the same game. You yeah. teach these kids the same way I'd teach those guys. So, um, that, I think that was another big piece for me. So. Absolutely. So, you have this this coaching resume that's building up d3 coach you moved into professional baseball and after one year you pivot into scouting what led to that transition and how did it come about this position as the d-back specific northwest area scout what it comes back to for me was and uh, i'll be perfectly honest if this wasn't the case i'd probably still be coaching um but being a scout was far more conducive to being a husband and father than being a coach was. That, that's all it came back to for me. I mean, hands down, I have autonomy in my job right now. Right. Like if my kid gets sick on Friday and I'm supposed to be in Eugene, I don't go to Eugene if my wife needs me and I'll just have to catch him on a different weekend. And that's, 
that when I say conducive, that's great. Like it, it is amazing being a husband and father. I think the other piece is, and like I, unless they're a bat boy or bat girl, like I don't bring them in the dugout with me. I bring my kids to every single game, <laughs> like every game I can. I actually, I got some crap thrown at me from other, some other area scouts up here. Like we got two high school prospects in Noble Meyer and Paul Wilson in the Pacific Northwest right now. Yep. Like those are, that's a stressful weekend when you got multiple cross checkers in town, national guys, scouting directors, and I'm rolling into the ballpark with three little kids and I got scouts being like, dude, couldn't you save it for a different weekend? There's like 500 people here. And it was like, nah, it's good. They'll be fine. Like, and I didn't have that freedom. I didn't have that flexibility as a coach all the time. So, um, honestly, that, that's what it came back to. It was a decision I made in spite of my career for my family. Um, which when you're, you know, at the time I was 34, 35 years old, like, it's not always easy to do that. So, um, you know, pretty driven and pretty excited about my future, but also realizing I got four little kids that I got to raise and, and teach them to go about it the right way too. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. So how did the D back specifically, how did that job come about? Uh, again, and this, this goes back when I was talking earlier about the sentiment that I have for the Minnesota twins, like this is a big part of it. Um, when I told, Oh, well, I called Jeremy Zoll. And I just said, hey, hey, Jay-Z, like, I don't want to have this conversation. It's not an easy one, but I'm not going to return next year. And he was really taken aback. He's like, well, talk to me about that. And I just said, listen, like, one, I can't afford to move my family out here on the salary I currently have. Yeah. I said, but but two, I, I can't be away from him. Like, I just can't do it. And he goes, man, I get it. I understand. Like, what's your plan? And I said, right now, I'm going to be a stay-at-home dad. And he goes, nah, you need to be in the game. Like I'm going to make some phone calls on your behalf. I'm going to give them a deadline. So they, they, I think I knew cause my dad was a scout at the time. I knew there were four positions hiring in the Pacific Northwest scouting jobs. Yeah. And I told Jay-Z that Jay-Z reached out to each club and said, here's our situation. Sit it all and, and hiring him you have 10 days to contact him. I flew home for the birth of my first son. His name is Carew, named after Rod Carew of the Minnesota Twins. Flew home for his birth um, at the end of July. And the day he was born, Derek Ladner called me from the Arizona Diamondbacks. He was the first call from any organization and just started chatting with me. Um, and within three days, they had offered me the position. Um, I got a call from Amiel, the assistant GM uh, with the D-backs, and he called and offered me the job. And it was like, whoa, I got to go back to Fort Myers. I got to pack up my car. I got to undo my locker. And shoot, they did it all for me. Like the, the twins packed everything up, threw it in my trunk. The Diamondbacks shipped my car across the country, and I've been scouting ever since. So uh, it's been good. Yeah, I was. I'll be honest, every step of the way, man, I've been so incredibly taken care of by the people around me. Like, I've just been really, really blessed and really, really fortunate to be around good people. So that's, I've just been lucky. So Yeah, no, especially you talk about the twins, being willing to help and go to bat for you. So many, beyond baseball, just companies and industries around the world, if you say, hey, I'm, I'm quitting, they say, okay, thanks, and that's the end of it, you know. Yeah, them, see you later, right? Right, them going the extra mile to – help you land your next gig and then helping you pack your stuff up, being able to move from Fort Myers back. So it's a lot about the organization. You're right. One of the common themes that has always come up in talking to scouts and evaluators is, and I feel like this is true in life in general, the people that are around you make a significant difference in your life, who you surround yourself with, who's around you. And it seems like you and many others in this game, it can be a brutal game in a lot of ways, but there's also a lot of times that people really, really go the extra mile to help you out. Well, and like I said, this, this story is a testament to that. Um, yeah. You know, I, I still send Jeremy Zoll Christmas cards, right? Like I'm still close with a lot of guys that I used to be close with on that staff because they were really great people who had an impact in my career. So. All right. So now getting into the meat and bones of it, you're a Diamondback scout. It's your very first year. And you come into the organization in a year in 2019 where they have seven of the top 75 picks. It's a big, big draft for them. They've traded away Paul Goldschmidt in a big deal. 
Dave Pollock left in free agency, Patrick Corbin free agency. This is an organization that is at the very beginning of a rebuild and hitting on the picks in this draft will directly affect how quickly they're able to get back to contention. It's a very, very important draft for them. What were the conversations like for you? Again, you're, you're brand new. You've just gotten there. You know you have some talent up in the region, and you know how important this draft is to this organization specifically. What were the conversations like as as a staff, you know, to you as an area scout and, and just as a group as a whole? Yeah, honestly, like all that kind of went seamless for me. I, I don't recall like them sitting down and saying like, this is so important. I do remember, I'll never forget this. I remember Mike Hazen having a, a long conversation with our entire group about the importance of our, of our group, of the scout, the amateur scouting group to that organization. I think you can make this argument for any small mark, smaller market team. Um, like you got to hit on your draft picks cause you don't have the, the spending power to go buy that ACE that you need to win a world series. Like, so you really got to hit on those guys. And I remember, I remember Hayes, I remember that message clearly. And I just remember like thinking like, you know, I, again, I've, I've grown up with a scout as a dad, so I've, I've heard everything, right? I've heard like, oh yeah, the scouts are the backbone of the organization, but I've also seen that not be the truth. Right. Um, but when, when Hayes is standing up there, like pounding the table in front of us and saying, Hey, like it's on you guys to make this happen. Like, I don't know. I liked it. It was like a challenge. Like, all right, this is a responsibility I have. Like, let's do it. Like, I thought it was great. Um, I, I'll say this, like, because it was my first year and because I was so afraid to screw anything up, I was that much more diligent. Yeah. You know, like, uh, I have never done this since, but I saw Corbin, I saw 48 of Corbin's high school at bats his senior year. Yeah. Like, 15 games I went to yeah like I don't I might go to four or five games on a top guy now like or maybe just three like depending on how busy the area is right but like I I had to do my due diligence I was a first year scout so I knew if I screwed something up it was going to be glaring um and it was it worked out really well <laughs> I, I think it helped that I had phenomenal guidance um not not just our front office and stuff, but like the guys I work directly with, like Doyle Wilson, our our regional cross checker. Like, I mean, to this day, I consider him a mentor, and not just a mentor in the game, but a mentor as a man. So, uh, yeah, I've just been every step of the way. I told you that I've just been fortunate. I've been around good people who have helped guide me down the right path and helped direct me in the right direction. And uh, this situation was no different. Um, I mean, that draft was great. Obviously, like dream yeah. draft for me personally and for our org at the end of the day. But, um, I get my name on those guys, but we had like 75 reports on each of them, you know, like it's, it's a team effort when it comes to those big time top picks. Like, yeah, uh, it's a, so yeah, I get my name. I get credit. Like I get my name on the plaque, but at the end of the day, like it was all of us who made those decisions. So, um, just like I said, fortunate to be around a good group of people who supported what I thought. And um, when a first year scout said like, Hey, this guy could be the face of the franchise someday. They said, all right, let's do it. And it happened. So um, pretty, pretty phenomenal. Yeah. With that, with Corbin. So, you know, he was very well known. He had taken part in the summer showcase circuit, you know, even though it was a smaller guy, the talent, you couldn't miss it. He was considered really a potential top 10 pick. I remember being out here on the West coast, helping out with a lot of our West coast draft coverage was hey this guy could go top five top ten as we all know he slid and we'll get to that in a second but you know it wasn't like he was a guy you had to go in and discover it there had been a lot of history with him a lot of leg work done on him but this was your first time really getting to see him for yourself and dive in on him what were the things about Corbin Carroll that jumped out to you and, and made you make the case that hey this isn't just you know a, a good player this is a potential face of the franchise type player yeah I mean the, the tools speak for themselves like I mean I see his sprint speed almost every single day on baseball network, right? Like yeah. the dude flies like, and that there's no mistaking that. Like you can't hide that sort of speed anywhere on the defensive side, on the offensive side, on the base paths, like it impacts every part of the game. So I think that that tool obviously stands out. Um, there were some, there were some moments though for Corbin that like, <laughs> this is going to sound weird. Uh, the first time I saw him take off his shirt, the dude was one of the most ripped human beings I've ever seen in my life. And it was just a testament to his work ethic. Like 
it was an immediate like, dude, this kid ain't afraid to get after it. Like you don't look like that otherwise. Um, and then if you dig a little deeper, it's like, you also don't have that body fat percentage if you're not paying attention to how you're eating and like, and then it became like, this dude's already a professional and how he approaches this game. Um, and then you start digging more. I mean, his mom and dad, Palin and Brant, like the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. Uh, phenomenal human beings, phenomenal parents. Um, you know, when I, when I met Campbell, their daughter, who was 13 years old and she held an adult conversation with me, it was like, shoot, what am I stumbling upon here? <laughs> like, these are really special people. Um, and I, I mentioned earlier, like I was a head coach of the small Christian college. Like I got some really high makeup, high character guys. And I remember calling my wife after my in-home visit with Corbin and being like, this kid's the best I've ever met. Like, I don't know if, I don't know if a human being is more dialed in and ready for professional baseball than this kid is. Big part of that process for me and getting to know him. In fact, Corbin was so mature and so professional in how he communicated that initially I assumed either his mom and dad were doing it for him because it was, I was speaking to an adult, not an 18 year old kid. Um, and then as you just got to know him better and better, it was like, this is legit. And I mean, a hundred million dollar extension is a testimony to that, right? Like you don't invest in the turds. So he's a special one for sure. Yeah, absolutely. When during that scouting process was the in-home visit, was it in the fall? Was it in the spring during his season? When did that take place? Uh, right before Christmas. I think it was the week before Christmas, December. Um, and the only reason I remember that is because Typically, I drive everywhere in the Northwest, but we had bad weather over the past, so I flew to Seattle for that trip um, and had to figure out how to park a rental call, rental car in Seattle, which is a whole different story. So, Yeah, so, I mean, you have the in-home visit. He blows you away. Then you go out in the spring, and, and he has the type of season he does. When were you convinced that, okay, this is the guy that I, I want to go to bat for. Cause again, you had the great conversations, but you also need to see the performance on the field Were there specific moments, specific games that jump out in your mind where it just, it just sticks out to you as like, it's all here. Yeah, we had a, so they don't take batting practice up here um, for the high school games. It's just a rule that they have both in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, like they just don't take BP on the field before games. Um, so what a lot of times we have to do is we have to like set up workouts or whatever. Well, when, when the player is a high profile guy like Corbin, like they set out the workouts and they just text everyone or email everybody and say, Hey, show up if you want to show up. Um, well, it was like halfway, it was like a halfway point through the season and he had a workout. So we showed up and it was, it was odd. Cause it was just me, Doyle, my cross, my regional cross checker. And then like a national cross checker from a random club. It was only like three scouts there, which is really uncommon for this kid. And he's taking BP and it's just line drive after line drive. First of all, he's doing it on a pitching machine, which anybody who's ever played baseball, it's like, you get a choice. You get a hit in front of scouts. You either get a live arm or you get a pitching machine. Like nobody chooses a pitching machine. The timing sucks. Yeah. Like, but Corbin's got this pitching machine cranked up and he's just smoking line drives all over the field. And Doyle from behind home plate, like Corbin's kind of taking a break between swings and Doyle goes, Hey man, that all you got? Like, when are you going to open it up? And Corbin kind of looked back at him and smiled. And the very next pitch, he hit out to dead center. And it was like, all right, this kid's special. Like, they're, they're, nobody does that. Not a high school kid on a pitching machine. Like, yeah. when somebody says, hey, you going to open it up? He's like, yeah, here you go. Like, yeah. it was – that moment was one for sure. Um, the other thing for me was it was just guidance. Because I'll be honest, like, if he's not on the circuit – it's really tough to, to gauge how he's going to do against elite pitching right. in this, in, in the Northwest. Like, I mean, he probably hit close to 700 his senior year of high school, not more, you know, like, I don't know if he's going to be a pro guy. Like that's really tough, so especially as a first, first year scout. Like, um, so having people to lean on, having even to be able to say to my dad, like, who's a, a competitor. Right. But like, Hey, is this guy like legit? Like, is he as good as I think he is? You know? And my dad's like, mm-hmm, sure is. Like that, that helps in the process. So. Yeah, absolutely. What were the the kind of things that you were leaning on 
with your dad through your first year as a scout and especially scouting someone as high profile as Corbin? Um, not so much like individual players and stuff, but more just trying to organize the area, trying to write a schedule, trying to determine, you know, if I see these guys in January, I'm going to need to see them again in May and like trying to line it up so that you're getting your looks on your guys. And those are some of the intricacies that I think people don't necessarily recognize that we do as scouts. Like, I mean, we're weathermen, <laughs> we're, we're travel planners. Like it's, it's uh yes, it's fun, dude. Like I get paid to watch baseball. That's great. But like I bring people with me. Like I'll be like, Hey, you want to come with me to the game? Like get a double queen. You can hang out with me in the hotel Like get away from your family for a weekend. And I always have guys do it. But by Sunday, they're like, dude, I'm ready to go home. And I'm yeah. like, it's been three days, man. <laughs> Try sitting at the area codes for seven straight days on wooden bleachers that hurt your rear end. So different world, but yeah, it's, it's not as uh, glamorous as I think outsiders see it as. Um, but I'll be honest, like, it's a dream. Like, I love it. It's a blast. So uh, it's got its challenges, but I wouldn't trade it for anything at this point. So, Absolutely. So, so with Corbin, again, you've done the in-home visit. You've seen his performance. You, you've seen the workout where he has that ability to just open it up, like, you know, on a dime off a pitching machine. Like you said, you, you don't see that a whole lot from high school kids especially. <laughs> Draft day comes around, and, and look, there's expectation in a lot of circles that he's probably going to go top 10. And then you just start seeing other teams pick other guys. When did it dawn on you, like, hey, we might have a shot here? And, and you know, what was your reaction when it got to pick 16? You're like, oh, my God, we he's here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> such a surreal experience, honestly. Like, looking back at it, it's it's like I was dreaming it <laughs> like it literally was like that's how it felt um I so I went to his final game uh, of his senior season and I wasn't scouting him I already knew how I felt about him um I was scouting the scouts at that point like all right what what teams ahead of us are picking and who's here um this is the last opportunity to see this kid and I mean we had 15 teams uh picking ahead of us that year because we took him 16th overall. Um, you can eliminate the Adley Rushmans. Like, that's pretty easy, those first couple picks, the Bobby Witts. Yeah. And then it was like, all right, let's see what happens here. And I kind of felt like I'm, he might slip because he was undersized. Right. And just I know how the industry views smaller guys. Like, I wasn't a huge dude, but I wasn't a small guy either. But I, I get it. Like, there ain't too many little big leaguers. Like, it just doesn't – it's not normal. Um and I think that's probably why he slipped. And there's probably at least 13 teams being like, dang, maybe we should have taken that kid. <laughs> so I don't know. That'd be my guess, though. Were you on draft day? Were you on the phone? Were you in the draft room? Every team does it a little differently in terms of who they bring in. Uh, where were you on draft day? And how did this kind of all unfold? I was sitting in my king size master bedroom with my laptop in my lap and my cell phone by my side. Um, we we uh, we do everything from home. Um, you know, I, I present all my players for our draft meetings tomorrow. Uh, it'll be remote. Uh, so we do a lot, especially since COVID hit, like a lot of what we do is remote, which as a husband, as a husband and father of four kids, like it's kind of a blessing. I'm not yeah. going to complain about it, even though I do miss some of my teammate interactions that we usually have on the road. But um, yeah. Sorry, what was your question again? Apologize. Yeah, no. So, so on on draft day, you know, how did this unfold? That you know, Corbin was the pick. Did you call you know your scout director say, hey, like, let's make this happen? I mean, what? How did how did that unfold? Yeah. So actually, um, I got three text messages before I saw the live stream of the draft, and they weren't from anyone in our org. Um, they were from like the White Sox area scout, the Rockies area scout, another guy like dude congrats and i was like oh we must have taken him <laughs> like i hadn't i didn't know um and then it was announced and again i do i call the kid do i call my but i had no idea what the process was so um that was a little that was that was odd that was an uncomfortable like awkward i waited like 15 minutes to call corbin and he didn't answer and then he called me back and he was in the middle of his draft party so it was like uh did I drop the ball? I thought I screwed something up, but it was fine. It was good. It worked out. So, yeah, I mean, what was it like for you knowing, again, it's your first year, you're a first year scout. This is the top pick that your organization has. And 
they ultimately picked a guy that you you went to bat for. Yeah, it felt it felt good. You know all the veteran scouts around you, like all your teammates have also seen this kid. Like so it kind of took the pressure off in a lot of ways. Like they weren't riding on my call. Like they weren't just saying we're going to take this guy cuz Dan said we should. Like <laughs> that wasn't it. Like yeah. and I don't think that's ever the case with those high profile guys, right? So um that kind of helped take the pressure off and um yeah man i'll be honest i to this point i'm still like i'll wake up some mornings and be like yeah i guess that did happen <laughs> so because it does it just still feels so surreal i mean i got to i got to go to corbin's opening day his debut uh not his opening day but his debut um got to see his first big league hit like man it's just a blur it's like i've dreamed it all it's pretty cool though it's been fun absolutely and, and just signing corbin carroll would have been you know a, a big big win for you as a scout uh, really any context but especially your very first year on the job getting the first round pick the top pick in a draft that's really really important for your organization and a premium player but he wasn't the only player you got in that draft ryan nelson who was at oregon was also someone that you scouted and ultimately were the signing scout for d-backs took him the second round that year what were your impressions of Ryan when you first saw him? Because he was kind of an interesting background, right? He was a two-way guy. He pitched a little bit in relief. The Ducks moved him into the rotation. It didn't go well that junior year. He moved back into the bullpen. What did you see that you liked? And what did you see that, hey, I know starting didn't work out, but I still think this guy might have a chance to start? For Ryan, it was honestly like, it's never easy, but like he was easier because of his athleticism. Like, mm -hmm this is a game of adjustments and every level you climb, it just gets faster and faster and faster and faster. Right. So the guys who can make adjustments quickest are the ones who have the most success in my opinion. Um, and the guys who are able to do that are the good athletes. Um, and that's what it came back to for Ryan. Now who he is now on the mound and who he is or who he was when I was, was when I was watching him during 2019, uh, he's not the same guy. Uh, and that's a testament to our player development staff. That's a testament to Ryan's work ethic. Like he's really transformed himself over the last, you know, four years to be where he is like that. That's, and obviously he's done that alongside some great resources with our, our PD staff and our, our pitching coaches. Like I thought about this the other day when we first talked about doing this interview, uh, can you imagine being a rookie pitcher and having Brent Strom as your pitching coach, yeah, like that guy's a legend. Like Ryan's gonna look back on his early years in his career, and he's gonna go, "Whoa, I was so fortunate to get to work with that guy." Like, pretty awesome. So, um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. You mentioned Ryan's a very different pitcher now than he was back then. What was he like back then? Um, he was an athlete on the mound back then. Um. It's actually kind of interesting because I still see some of the like some of the flashes of like some up and down where it's like he'll go out and he'll throw 20 pitches in the first inning and then mow them down for four straight. Um, yeah. That was something he had to work through at Oregon at times. Um, and I think that's part of the reason he bounced back and forth between the bullpen and the rotation. Um, uh, it was the inconsistency. But again, I think when you're when you're just an athlete pitching and not a pitcher, um, you're going to see some of that inconsistency. So. Um, and he's proving to develop himself as a pitcher, which is awesome. So you mentioned that athlete who really had to learn how to be a pitcher. There's a lot of rawness there. And sometimes it's one thing to take a flyer on that and, you know, the eighth round, ninth round, 10th round, it's another to do it in the second round where you're looking at a seven figure signing bonus. What did you see that gave you the confidence to, to grade him as that caliber of talent? Yeah, I've told this story before, but, um, I saw like the it factor in Ryan on a Sunday against Oregon state. And I, I go back to that moment and I know that was the moment that clicked for me. Um, if you ever watch Ryan pitch, he licks like his whole hand and then grabs his hat like this over and over and over and over. He's got like a brand new hat on. It's got a smudge from doing it the whole game. Like still does it. Yeah. Well, he was at Oregon state and he, he K'd Bo Phillip. And then, you know, did his thing. And the Oregon State dugouts called timeout. 
They went out to the umpire and they said, you need to check his hat for a foreign subs for a foreign substance. And Ryan was pissed. <laughs> like, I mean, he was glaring at the Oregon state dugout while the umpires looking at his stuff, just shaking his head at him. And the next two hitters, he lit up. It was a hundred. It was the first time I'd seen a hundred as a scout on the, on the radar gun. And it was like, Whoa, like when that guy digs deep, it's different. And that, that's what clicked for me on him. I did have some tough moments during the, that year with him because he was up and down quite a bit that, you know, you get cross checkers in and they seem really, really bad. And they call you and say, Hey, he's probably an eighth rounder. And you go, Oh crap. Like, do I need to change my report? You panic a little bit, start to call other scouts. And and I was fortunate to have guys like Doyle, guys like Jeff Mauser, who's our national pitching uh, guy. Like, I called both of them, and they're like, no, don't change it. You stay with what you got. Stick with your gut. You're going to have plenty of support in the draft room. And I was like, okay. And sure enough, I did. So, um, yeah, understanding the process, understanding uh, not pushing the panic button, like, something I do quite often where you're watching players even this year. And it's like, man, I wasn't really on him, but he's raking. Like, what am I missing? Yeah. So, cause we're not all perfect. Like we're paid for our opinion. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, it goes back to that support. You talk about Doyle and, and Jeff. I've gotten to know them over the years, seen them around quite a bit out here on the West coast. And yeah. I mean, like you said, it's good people make a difference. Cause if you don't have those people that have your back, you know, you got you guys probably don't take Ryan Nelson, and you feel like you did a bad job, and and you guys miss out. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. Like I said, man, it's like the the theme of this conversation. Like, been so fortunate to be surrounded by great people who have invested in me, and the results are what they are because of them. So, so I mean, these are, these are the first two players you sign as a scout. These are the first two players that you have your name on. And they both reached the big leagues last year. I mean, what was that like for you seeing that the first two guys you signed? I mean, so, some scouts go 15, 20 years and don't have a big leaguer. And you get the first two guys you signed go on and reach the majors. I mean, what was that like for you last year seeing both of them get up there? It's like winning the lottery. <laughs> like, honestly, like if, if you really break it down and have to look at like the things that need to line up in order for it to fall into place. I, I basically won the lottery in that regard. Like, um, and, and I look back at the experience and it still feels that way in a lot of ways. Like I've been fortunate cause I've had perspective, right? Like not too many first year scouts sat next to the computer with their dad every draft day for 25 years, listening to the thing on the radio Shoot, it used to be the dial-up internet. I remember sitting and listening to it like yeah. you're hearing and the Philadelphia Phillies select. Like, I remember those moments. Um, so I had some perspective. I, I watched my dad get his heart broken numerous times. I watched his mood change because of it. And I've been able to look at it and go, gosh, I, I don't want to ride that roller coaster um, in this career because I'll probably have a heart attack by the time I'm 30 if I do so. Um but again, I've just, I've had, I had some perspective that I think a lot of first year scouts don't have, um, because of my upbringing. Um, and it just, it allowed me to go into it with like kind of a, well, we'll see what happens. Um, and not get overly excited. Um, now I'll say I've, I've screwed that up in subsequent years. Like I've gotten really, like when, when you get a first and second round of your first year, it's like, dude, how am I going to top that? Like, and I probably won't ever. And, so, so with Corbin, again, we've talked about, again, there's no such thing as a guaranteed prospect ever, ever, ever in the draft. But obviously, given his pedigree, given his success, given how well-known he was, it, it wasn't a surprise to see him to be successful. Now, obviously, becoming the first player to get a $100 million contract with fewer than 100 days of service time, you can never predict that. But, but seeing him rise and become successful maybe wasn't as much of a – he was a higher odds player compared to a guy like Ryan Nelson, who – as you mentioned, was much more up and down, two-way backgrounds, going to start, relieve. There were so many more question marks there. You mentioned being at Corbin's Major League debut and, and seeing his first hit and how awesome that was. Ryan gets up, makes his big league debut last September in San Diego. Those first seven, K was Josh Bell. Yeah, those seven scoreless <laughs> innings against a really good offense with a lot of – with Manny Machado in the lineup, Juan Soto's in the lineup. You mentioned Josh Bell's in that lineup. Seven scoreless innings, four hits allowed, no walks, seven punch-outs. 
what was it like for you? First of all, did you get to watch that live? That start? I didn't, unfortunately. They were in San Diego. I had just come back from Corbin's debut. Like it was a week apart. So, right. I mean, it was like a Monday to a Monday, I think. So it was, uh, it's like, man, I don't know if I can jump on a plane and be gone more, but I did watch it on TV. Um, special man like i said it's just so surreal like you watch that happen you watch it occur and you're like whoa i wow like good for you, you at that point it almost feel like a fan in some ways yeah. <laughs> like and i still do right now like shoot man i haven't missed the diamondbacks game this year and that's i usually don't keep my phone on but kind of hard not to watch them when they're playing like they are so yeah no absolutely i i mean given that there was that uncertainty to see him go out and have an outing like that. I mean, was it even more just an incredible feeling just because you did kind of stick your neck out a little bit when you had some, some people in your own organization saying, I, I don't know about this one. Yeah. And, and I think it might only been one or two guys that had that opinion. Cause he was pretty, pretty hands down, no brainer for a lot of us. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was definitely special. I mean, I, I look back at that and I, I don't know. I look at it the same way I look at Corbin, though, man. Honestly, like, he's an undersized guy. Now, in retrospect, it's easy to be like, yeah, he's pretty good. But <laughs> he's a little guy, right? So, and he, he had to overcome a pretty serious injury, you know, in the minor leagues. And he didn't spend a lot of time down there. So, yeah. I mean, even, even Corbin in that regard is a surprise. Like, but it comes back to the makeup. And I think you can even say some similar things about Ryan Nelson, like, I want to say I was surprised by his success, but I wasn't. Like, I had him where I had him for a reason, you know? Like, and if – on my on my uh, Twitter account, like, I don't get on social media much, but I use a hashtag as part of my profile. It says, putting wings on dreams, because I feel like that's my job as a scout, to put wings on dreams. Every one of these kids, anyone who's ever picked up a baseball that fell in love with the game wants to be a big leaguer. Like, and – for me, like these kids are helping fulfill my dreams. <laughs> Honestly, like if you look at where I'm at in my career, like part of my job is to help us win a world series. Like these are the type of players that are going to get us there at some point. So, um, you know, like I, I said it earlier, but like, I just feel so incredibly fortunate to be a part of their story, you know, because at the end of the day, like they're, they're a part of mine. They're going to be on my resume, obviously, but like, every one of their successes, I, I, I feel like I get a little tiny bit of piece of that, you know, and that's fun. So. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, you're, you're part of their story and, and their story is just beginning. These guys, they debuted yeah. last year, they're rookies this year, um, got long careers ahead of them. And we know you've got a, a long career ahead of you as a scout or whatever, uh, whatever role you find yourself in, in baseball. It's, uh, it's been cool to see just how these guys have grown and, I'd say as a first-year scout back then, you, you certainly did your part in helping to help the organization <laughs> hit big on that 2019 draft. I mean, that, you know, talk about, I remember writing about it at the time that the history of teams that have, we they call them draft bonanzas. You know, oh, we have seven of the top 70-some-odd picks or eight of the top 90 or whatever. Most of them don't work out very well. For for whatever reason, a lot of them typically just, just you know, you get one or two guys maybe I mean, again, it's still early, but you look at this draft for, for the D-backs, five of the seven are already in the big leagues. Corbin Carroll, Dre Jamison, Ryan Nelson, Tommy Henry, Dominic Fletcher just got called up. Blake Walston's in AAA with a sub-3 ERA in Reno, which is really not easy to do. And, and yeah. Brennan, Brennan Malone was uh, was moved as part of a trade to bring in a star in, in Starling Marte. So, I mean, you guys kind of hit on – not kind of. You guys did hit on this draft, and it was a big one, and, and it's a big reason why – after starting this rebuild in 2019, four years later, that that stereotypical four-year rebuild, 2023, you guys are off to a great start. And, and I would imagine it's got to be a pretty good thing knowing you had a part in, again, signing these guys, but also you know, directly helping the organization, which at the end of the day is, is what you want to do. Uh, amen. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. It's it's fun, man. I, I never dreamt I would ever be in this position. <laughs> Honestly, like, again, I have my dad's been a scout for over 30 years and like, He'd never been fortunate enough to experience something like this. I mean, he's had his handful of big leaguers, but not like not like what these guys have done at this point in their career. I mean, they still have a long career ahead of them, but still, it's, like I said, I I count my blessings. So, 
I do have to ask, what's been your dad's reaction to all this, seeing that, you know, you signed these guys and, and they've had the success they've had? Well, you're a father, right? So, like, yeah. I think he loves it. I think he's taken as much pride in it as, as I am, honestly. Like, yeah, it's fun. So. Awesome. All right. Well, Dan, thank you so, so much for joining us today. This was awesome. Congratulations on all your success. And we look forward to uh, much more to come. Awesome. Thanks, Kyle. I really appreciate it. Once again, that was Diamondbacks Pacific Northwest Air Scout, Dan Ramsey. Uh, just some really, really great stories there and really kind of amazing just the journey he took going from being a player and thinking he would jump right into baseball as soon as uh, his his final year was done, or I should say the year before his uh, final year of eligibility to walking into the AD's office and pitching himself as a potential head coach of a Division three college program at the age of 22. Clearly, it worked out. He was successful there, made his way into pro ball, was uh, on the right path as a manager in the GCL with the Twins for family reasons, moved over to scouting, and, and right away, the very first two players he signed became big leaders. That's that's incredibly rare in scouting, and uh, it's important to note he talked about all the people who, who helped make that happen along the way. Uh, that's a really common theme here. We, we talk about with all scouts on the podcast how – you know, it's always a group effort and these guys do the legwork and deserve credit. And, and it's the entire organization that takes a part in making good things happen. That was the case for the D-backs, bringing Corbin Carroll and Ryan Nelson as two of their top picks during that draft bonanza in 2019. And we're now in the big leagues, helping them really become competitive for the first time in a few years. So we'll see what the future holds for them as well as for Dan. It was great having him on and uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Behind the Plate. Go ahead and give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. Once again, for Dan Ramsey, I'm Kyle Glazer. This has been another episode of Behind the Plate presented by Baseball America. Look forward to talking to you next week.